0: Ladies and gentlemen, this episode is brought to you by my weekend email. Every weekend, I send out a few interesting links, articles, sources that I've been reading. Last weekend, for example, I shared five links, including the only video I've been able to find of John Maynard Keynes speaking, if you've ever wondered what he sounded like, and Clive James's sad but beautiful farewell poem. To join my mailing list and get access to my weekend emails, head to thejspod.com
1: you're listening to the jolly swagman podcast here's your host joe walker
0: ladies and gentlemen boys and girls swagmen and swagettes welcome back to the show it is great to be back with you i am honored to introduce this episode Regular listeners of the show will have noticed that many episodes in the past six months have been exploring the ways in which modern capitalism has gone awry and how we can correct its course. This episode is in that vein. In recent years, my guest has been producing some of the most eloquent and authoritative critiques of both modern capitalism and rampant individualism. Those of us who own smartphones, have ever taken medicine, and use flushing toilets are familiar with the triumph of, of capitalism, but despite its stunning achievements, modern capitalism is, in the words of my guest, morally bankrupt and on track for tragedy. But he doesn't just lob hand grenades, he also offers pragmatic solutions, like, for example, taxing the gains of agglomeration to curb rent-seeking, an idea that we discuss at the end of our conversation. My guest is Sir Paul Collier, Professor of Economics at Oxford University. Paul was the Director of the Development Research Group at the World Bank between 1998 and 2003, and he's the author of several brilliant books, including The Bottom Billion, The Plundered Planet, The Future of Capitalism, and most recently, Greed is Dead, which was co-authored with John Kay. The Future of Capitalism and Greed is Dead are written like nothing I've ever read from the hand of an economist. They're written with, and I hesitate to use these words because they feel like those platitudes you read in book reviews, but I think they're true in this case, a sense of urgency and passion. I strongly recommend them. I think that comes through in this conversation as well, and I do hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Without much further ado, please welcome the great Paul Collier. Paul Collier, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for inviting me on. Paul, it's so great to have you on the show. We were connected by David Tuckett and I'm a huge fan. I've read two of your books, Greed is Dead, co-authored with John Kay and previous to that, The Future of Capitalism, which is written with such urgency and passion and I can't wait to have this conversation with you. Paul, I was born and raised in Newcastle, Australia. But Paul, you were raised, born and raised in Sheffield, which is England's version of Newcastle. What was Sheffield like when you were growing up and how has it changed today?
1: Yeah, well, I'm not Paul Collier for nothing, right? So, um, uh, some of my ancestors were coal miners. One was a miner's leader. Um, and uh, my great-grandfather was um, a... Uh, a cutler, um, which was the most dangerous uh, work in the Industrial Revolution, because when you ground the knives on a stone, the the microparticles um, messed up the lungs. So my whole family grew up in Sheffield, a coal and steel world, and it collapsed. I I was the only one to get out both my parents left school when they were 12, and so my entire relatives were people working in those industries, and they collapsed pretty well all at once in the early 80s, um, with the closure of the steelworks and the closure of the mines. So my lived experience is, uh, is Newcastle, um, uh, Newcastle in England, as it were, yeah. Sheffield. Indeed, there was a great film uh, that you might have seen called The Full Monty, which depicted that tragedy. Um, um, people forget, they, quite often they know the film, they just forget that Sheffield. Right?
0: I know this is a, a personal story, but your book, The Future of Capitalism, is dedicated to your cousin Sue. Can you tell me about why her life is an important symbol for you?
1: yeah well it's um, you know there's a it was a toss up I'm a very private person so I didn't like to make it personal but um, but in the end um, I did and my cousin's happy about it um, uh, this is the the opening page of the of the book and it's two little kids aged about four um, one is me and one is my cousin. We were born on the same day um, into very very similar worlds So neither of our parents had any education. Um, We both happened to be clever enough kids so we both got to um, state grammar schools Um, and then at 14 our lives diverged because her rather authoritarian father died um, and she went adrift. It was 1963, and there's a a famous line in a poem by Philip Larkin which says, sexual intercourse began in 1963. Um, uh, Larkin laments that it was just too late for him. Um, It was certainly too early for me. Um, It should have been too early for Sue. but uh, she became a teenage mother and that rolled down the generations so that both her daughters became teenage mothers. Um, and, uh, and that sort of cascaded down. Um, uh, so the divergence between us became quite astounding. Um, um, meanwhile, I carried on at my grammar school I was the freak that um, got from my background to Oxford. I progressed up the the various ladders um, of uh, academic attainment um, eventually becoming a first a professor at Harvard, then a professor at Oxford, and now also a professor in Paris at Science Po um, uh, the, you know, the Labour government gave me a CBE, the Conservative government gave me a knighthood and so on and so forth. Um, so uh, this sort of ridiculous divergence um, in, in lived experience, um, a, a divergence which really should have been avoidable. And so that's why the book has an edge of passion. Um, both the collapse of Sheffield should have been avoidable and this divergence between lives should have been avoidable. Um, But they weren't avoided. So that's that's the edge of passion. In in the end, I'm I'm an economist, and so I want to use my economics to understand why these massive divergences occurred and, more important, what can be done about them. Um, But there is an edge of passion to
0: the book. There's no question of it. Michael Young, the sociologist who helped British Labor draft its 1945 manifesto, also coined the term meritocracy in his 1958 book, The Rise of Meritocracy. And a meritocracy obviously is a society where social position is a function of talent rather than birth. But it's often forgotten, and you and John Kay point this out in Greed is Dead, that Young intended the term meritocracy or he depicted a meritocracy as a dystopia. And in 2001, he wrote that it is hard indeed in a society that makes so much of merit to be judged as having none. No underclass has ever been left as morally naked as that. How do you think about meritocracy?
1: Yeah, so why is it a dystopia? What's dystopian about it? And it's that word merit. Of course, you want talented people to... Um, get jobs that are appropriate for their talent Um, uh, and that still doesn't happen enough in Britain anything like Um, uh, but it's that word merit which is not just a neutral description of, of capabilities it's a praise word and it's a praise word that people with um, talents and competences attached to themselves. And so it's a dystopia once people who become successful say to themselves, I'm successful because I deserve it. Um, It's that move that uh, that is the evil damaging move because the successful people in a society set the narratives by which and the, the norms by which everybody else has to think. We control the media for a start. And so if we're asserting um, uh, the, the successful people deserve their success, then there's an inevitable further step which says that people who fail deserve their failure. And that's uh, what Michael Young meant by being left naked, just bereft of dignity. And of course, it's just not true that the successful people deserve their success. Um, they, they contribute to their success, but that's all a contribute. Here I am, um, this fancy professor. I've contributed to that, but to think that it's purely a matter of my dessert is ridiculous, right? I was astonishingly lucky. Right? I was in the right place at the right time. The dice rolled in the right way at the right time. And I had really good teachers and really good colleagues, who really have really helped me. I mean, my God, I can tell you writing a book with John Kay is an education in itself, right? Um, So um, there there is um, the notion that individual talent fully explains um, success is a complete indefensible myth. Um, And that applies both in the field of education and in the field of where you live. Um, The the people of Sheffield are now doomed to a lack of success because they're living in an opportunity desert. Um, uh, Good ideas cannot be uh, matched to the, the money, which is the fuel that scales ideas into um, real um, new activities Um, uh, whereas if you live in London um, you're uh, in a an opportunity oasis Um, uh, and so uh, there are at the moment huge spatial differences in Britain worse than any other uh, high-income country Um, which which, say that opportunities are skewed both by by education and by where you live. Um, And that is nothing to do with individual talents. Um, It's to do with um, the the fortune of where you live and whether you've uh, been placed on a track that gets you a good education or not.
0: Brief digression. What is it like writing a book with John Kay? <laughs> 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 a privilege, um, I should say. First of
1: all, um, um, we sat down together and arranged to have lunch, um, um, and, uh, and it was John's idea um, um, that we should we should actually write a book together. Um, And we never really meant it to be a book initially. It was that we should write something together. And then as we got writing, we decided it gradually escalated from an essay into a very short book. Um, And then it gradually grew like Topsy. The more we worked together, the more we found that we agreed and that we hit on new things. It was a wonderfully creative experience. Um, and we, we converged. I mean, Johnny's a man of firm opinions. Um, if he thinks you're wrong, um, he doesn't beat about the bush. Um, he says, you're wrong. And then there's a long pause. And then he explains why you're wrong. Um, <laughs> um, uh, and, and if you've any wisdom at all, you listen. Um, and think, um, but, uh, uh, but actually, it was a it was a wonderfully um, creative and compatible process, um, where we uh, we we sort of stumbled uh, into um, a book we're both really rather rather proud of, I think, um, and uh, um, and it was yeah it was a genuinely joint product, but um, um, the idea behind John's suggestion was he said, you know, you know about sort of communities of place um, uh, and I know about communities of work, business, and, um, uh, and you know about um, building uh, common purposes um, and I know about um, radical uncertainty, because that's the book he just written. Um, and these, these proved to be extraordinarily well-matched, fertile territory when you brought these two ideas together. Um, and then we found ourselves writing at a time of COVID. We started um, in November um, 2019, and no sooner had we started writing, than our society was hit by COVID. And COVID was just an extraordinary application of these two phenomena. Um, radical uncertainty. Did anybody know what to do when faced with COVID? No. Um, did we need to build new common purposes fast? My God, we did. We'll be we able to do it. It took longer than it should and enormous differences between societies.
0: How did British Labor lose the underclass or lose the working class and become the party of meritocracy? Yes, that's
1: unfortunately what happened. Um, of course, British Labor, by its very name, um, uh, was, was, was uh, created by and for the working class uh, around the country. Um, but what happened was... Um, uh, And indeed, with with the rise of sort of meritocracy, um, uh, educated and well-intentioned people moved into the party and um, uh, by their education um, uh, gradually sort of found themselves um, running the party. And um, their lived experience was very, very detached from the working class. I mean, somebody like Tony Blair and had been to the Scottish equivalent of Eton and then come to Oxford um, to read law, Um, but just completely detached from the working class. He he meant well, Um, but his grounding was really entirely uh, metropolitan, um, upper middle class. Um, and he viewed he, he came to the, the problem sort of uh, rather technocratically um, he, was, he was very well intentioned, um, but he was also very detached from the the lived anxieties of ordinary working class people that was the and then it got a lot worse it got a lot worse um, uh, because he and Gordon Brown um, brought in. Um, a whole new class of of, uh, uh, london-based technocrats um, who again um, meant well Uh, they thought that their expertise um, um, basically entitled them um, to to do things they thought they they thought they knew what they were doing Um, so they hadn't absorbed radical uncertainty at all Um, um, they really did think we know the model. We know what levers to pull, um, and off they went and pulled them.
0: I'd like to ask a few different questions about individualism and jump around a bit, Paul. One of your favourite studies in social science comes from New Zealand, and it's about regret. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah, I can. So. Um,
1: um, uh, when I speak to a, an audience of uh, of a mixed age group, I always start with a with a warning. I say you can do this on your own at night, um, but if you're over the age of about sixty, I advise you not to, because you're liable to hurt yourself. Um, I think yours is a young is such a young age group. Um, that um, uh, it um, you can all safely do it um, uh, because it, very def- it won't be painful um, um, but the reason it won't be painful is um, you've not had enough um, uh, shit happening in life yet um, uh, though, though I dare say Covid's accelerated the exposure to shit anyway so what's the experiment um, the experiment is to write down the three things in your life that you most regret. Right? Your three biggest regrets. You have to do it seriously on your own, sitting down with a piece of paper, and you have to write them down. Right? And they have to be your three biggest regrets. Um, and then the psychologists gather those bits of paper up and classify the regrets, put them into buckets. And if we were all the individualist, selfish, greedy, lazy people that economics assumes, homo economicus, it would be quite clear which bucket was full. It would be full of uh, regrets about decisions that led to Um, material consequences like loss of money or failure to uh, acquire um, uh, uh, things that led to wealth so you know your big regrets would be if only I hadn't messed up that interview with Goldman Sachs you know if only I hadn't uh, um, missed the opportunity to buy bitcoin right if only it would all been regrets like that, right? Um, but when the psychologists come to add up these regrets and they look in that bucket, it's virtually empty. Right? We all have regrets like that. Right? They're not, they don't make the big three. Right? At least by my age, they don't make the big three. Right? And by my age, um, The big three are too painful to contemplate, um, which is why it's so ill-advised for people of my age to do it. But the sort of regrets are all about, I let down my parents at a critical time. I let down my spouse. I let down my friend. Um, These are the ones where it really, really hurts. They're um, failures. Um, uh, uh, in, in terms of your proper fulfilment of your obligations to others um, those are the things that hurt um, uh, and um, because they hurt so much on the whole we learn to avoid making those sort of mistakes though you know, if you live long enough you still make them but you learn that they're so bloody painful that it's better to try and um, honor your obligations. Um, and, and that is indeed what we've learned about human nature is humans are very, very unusual mammals. Um, we are a mammal, and so like other mammals, we're inclined to be greedy, lazy, and selfish, but we're a very extraordinary mammal, mammal because we're vastly more pro-social than pretty well any other mammal. We care about others. We bond into groups. Um, we care about the opinions of people in our groups. And so we're desperate to retain their good opinion. Um, uh, and that's why um, that bucket, which that which has our top three regrets, uh, are regrets where we failed in that basic human uh, emotion of Um, wanting the good opinion of other people.
0: So these twin aspects of human nature that were not just self-interested but that were also pro-social were known at the inception of economics. They were understood by Adam Smith, at least if you read the theory of moral sentiments and not just the wealth of nations. At what point did economics... Lose its way because its models began to be populated by, frankly, psychopaths. In other words, homo economicus. Yeah. At what point did things change? Uh, in the
1: fifties, um, it was it was the it was the period of um, rampant simplistic Darwinianism, um, uh, and uh, so at the time. Um, uh, evolutionary biologists were saying, oh Darwin means the the survival of the fit and that means the survival of the shit um, uh, when applied to economics. And so economists thought that they were absorbing evolutionary biology just like they were desperate to worship um, uh, physics, the sort of physics of Newton, Billiard balls pinging around the the universe. So, individuals with a billiard ball, they were the atoms, as it were. Um, And how did the atoms behave? What was the theory of of the behavior of the atom? Well, there you got it from biology, um, uh, because unfortunately humans were living beings rather than um, uh, lumps of rock. And so, you needed some theory of human behavior. And that, that you got from this um, very crude Darwinian notion of we're all shits, we're greedy, lazy, and selfish. Um, uh, and evolutionary biology has moved on massively from the 1950s. Um, the new pillars of evolutionary biology, I mean, the, the head of the Department of Evolutionary Biology at Harvard is Joe Heinrich, who has these brilliant books, The Secret of Our Success, The Weirdest People in the World, Um, his counterpart at Yale, Nicholas Christakis, a brilliant book called Blueprint. And what's their message? Their message is, my goodness, we're very pro-social. Our natural unit of taking decisions is not even the individual. You shouldn't be even starting with a theory of atoms. Humans cluster together into groups. We're designed to bond for very good evolutionary reasons. The people who didn't bond into groups died out because coming down from the trees in the savannah was so bloody dangerous. You needed to be in groups, quite big ones, in order to survive. So we're hardwired by evolution to be pro-social, to work in teams together, um, and to take our decisions, from the collective brain. The big big idea in Joe Heinrich, if you take one big idea from a vast book, um, is the collective brain or the collective mind. Most of the time, we take most of our decisions not by our own super smarts, homo sapiens, sapiens, aren't we clever? Um, We take our decisions from our group memory. And our group memory stores the uh, information from the uh, sensors of all the people in our group over many, many years. And so he's much better informed than any individual can possibly be. And so it's clever to to base most of our decisions off the group mind rather than our pathetic individual little minds. Um, And so we should be starting Economics from a theory of the behaviour of a network community, not from a theory of a greedy, selfish little atom. Um, uh, And that is just a fundamental analytic error in um, the economics that was born in the 1950s. Um, Now, it it, 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 picked up this theory of individual greed, um, we maximise this thing called utility, which itself turns out to be a completely fatuous concept. Um, there, neuroscientists cannot find anywhere in the brain that corresponds to a process of maximising utility. Right? It's just not there. We, what do our brains tell us to do? We are goal-oriented. We have goals, we have purposes. We strive for purposes, and depending on which purpose is salient, that's where we're striving about at that moment in time right um, So the idea that we've got some big calculator in our brains maximizing our utility is a uh, a little fantasy you know it's like it's, it's a theory equivalent to father christmas right it's a, it's a it's a little fantasy. Father Christmas is something we tell children. Nice fantasy. Um, uh, maximizing utility is something economists tell themselves, right? Um, because it's so bloody handy mathematically. We've got all this very simple maths of how to maximize under constraints. So why? So we need, we need something to maximize, please. And so it's individual utility. And then we do a, put a sigma in front of it, and the... The purpose of public policy is to maximize Zigma sigma-utility. Um, and so we're really in business, we've got a theory of public policy, um, uh, which says what we should be doing, the government is maximizing Zigma sigma-utility, and what individuals are doing is maximising their own individual utility. And so, ne'er the twain shall meet. Um, there's a real problem the public policy, unfortunately, um, needs to be set by human beings. So we invent a new category called saints. Um, and saints are at the top of society, parachuted in. Um, so the saints are the uh, are the, the, the top uh, officials who um, save us from our individual greedy selves um, and avoid things like the tragedy of the commons. Right? And so saints at the top, uh, deus ex machina, there's no real process of generating saints, they're self-appointed. Um, um, uh, Plato started that idea with the idea of platonic guardians. He thought, his, 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 uh, his one idea, his, his one mistake um, was that he thought the platonic guardians should be philosophers. So we economists put him right on that one. Um, uh, so there's some economists at the top, maximizing sigma utility for the society, and uh, and then greedy little shits underneath, uh, maximizing their own utility. And then we then the the trick that economics pulls is to build a system whereby the leaders, the saints, can get these greedy little ships uh, to behave in the interests of the society, and that is a principal agent theory. James Murley's Nobel Prize for it. Um, And what is it? It's that you monitor people, you watch them like a hawk, and then you incentivize them. You tie incentives to monitored behavior. And that way those greedy little shits are running after their own maximum utility, but they've got to in order to get the incentives they've got to behave well. Um, What a a awful depiction of uh, human society. It's a complete travesty of human society. No good human society works like that. But in the past 40 years because we've pushed these systems through all our organizations, through our firms so that our communities of work were subject to these um, monitored incentive systems. And our, even, even, our, even our public organizations then aped this whole system, monitored incentives. Where we've, so we're constantly into daily habits where we're dragged down into behaving like these um, Homo economicus, greedy, lazy, selfish um, people. Um, no well functioning human society functions like that, yeah, as we've seen in COVID.
0: So the analogy between utilitarianism and Santa Claus doesn't just stop at the fact that both are based on fantasy, but also just like St. Nick, the utilitarian policymakers are sort of distributing gifts from on high. (laughs) And you you make a very powerful point, Paul, which is that what we need is not to transfer to the unsuccessful consumption, but productivity. And that kind of derives from this view of human nature that, Um, you know, we don't just want to consume, but we want to contribute.
1: Yeah, absolutely. um, So in the the standard economic uh, model of a human being, the only thing that raises utility is um, consumption and idleness. So in the economic model view, if you remember, you know, L, labor, enters negatively C, consumption enters positively right? and that's about it Right. Um, so um, what we all should want to do is just lie there on a beach all the time right? and we do that, it's called holidays right? Um, but remember we're purposive people and our purposes actually range wider than that I, I, I because of the nature of my work I, I've come to know quite a few billionaires um, they are all, all um, purpose-driven workaholics. And a lot of their work isn't anymore about making my billions, um, it's about trying to help others. Right? Um, so um, the, um, what, what does a society look like um, that is actually purposive? And it, it doesn't look like these um, laying around on a beach, it doesn't look as a, like a load of consumers, it looks like people who are fulfilling their purposes thanks to their own agency. And so what needs to be redistributed in a society like Britain is not just, we'll give you consumption because you're bloody useless at producing anything, you're so lacking in talents, um, but don't worry, we'll tickle you under the chin with some consumption. Right? Um, no. Um, uh, in Britain's opportunity deserts, there are plenty of people wanting to do things, um, but they have neither agency nor um, the opportunities to be productive and so they need to be empowered with agency and part of empowering them with agency is giving, the, give, give, giving them the skills, equipping them with the skills and then bringing to their home places um, the uh, employment opportunities um, uh, that enable them uh, to be productive and thereby to contribute to the whole. Um, We've not yet talked about a really powerful new concept, which is Michael Sandel's concept of contributive justice. And that supplants um, and supersedes the Rawlsian concept of distributive justice. Rawls wasn't a utilitarian, but he was still in this basic mind frame of tickle people under the chin with a bit of consumption. Um, Let's distribute, let's divide the cake so everybody gets a bit, right? Distributive justice. And that is a terribly passive view of people. All they have to do is pick up a slice of cake that somebody else has baked and cut. People want the agency to bake a cake, bake a cake together, right? and then agree on cutting it up Um, and it's a process of creating um, that is the the more satisfying part of that. It's the agency to do things and to contribute to that whole, to be be able to say, I was involved in baking that cake that we're now going to consume. That confers dignity. It's purposive. And that's where this is the sort of societies we need to build.
0: I have a lot of sympathy for utilitarianism, Paul, and consequentialism more broadly. I think consequentialism is a very powerful ethical theory. But as I've got older, I've sort of fallen out of love with it and gravitated more towards virtue ethics. The fathers of utilitarianism were famously quite weird should we infer anything about their theories from that weirdness or is that just ad hominem
1: (laughs) no i think it isn't i mean um they were very weird i mean um the idea that they should be uh, really influential in public policy um is is somewhat alarming The, the only reason they're influential is as i said it's just so handy um for uh, having something to maximise. Um, uh, so it was picked up by a, a subject, economics, which then happened to become hugely influential both in business and in public policy. Public policy and business became set by the ideas of economists. Um, and economists just found, oh, great, and I've got all this apparatus for maximising under constraints, let's have something that we can maximise. Utility. Right? Sigma utility. Great. So that was the, that's the problem. So let's have a look at them. Um, uh, um, the big one was Bentham. So Bentham um, uh, was, I, th- I think the best measure of his weirdness was that um, he arranged to have himself stuffed when he was dead so that he could continue to preside over committee meetings um, at uh, University College London um, to um, guide um, uh, by his presence uh, the decisions being taken. Um, And so he really did have himself stuffed, right? Um, uh, To be in that sort of mindset, um, you you have to be very, very peculiar, to say the least. And then if we turn to his disciple, Mill, um, Mill um, was uh, deliberately raised so that he did not play with other children. So he was force-fed Greek. Um, which he could understand from the age of three. So he, by the age of 20, he knew a lot more about ancient Greece than about the society in which he was living. Eh? Now, poor old Mill um, had all sorts of mental breakdowns and so on. Um, But these people are, are kind of creepy, frankly, um, so um, the, the thought that they should be the people who guide our societies, um, they, they, their behaviour um, should flag uh, warnings, you know? are these the intellectual leaders um, that we want to be guided by? I think not. Uh, And then, of course, when we look at their ideas um, and look at the consequences of their ideas, it's no surprise that they've led us into some very uncomfortable uh, forms of social behaviour.
0: So, to summarise, should we think of utilitarianism on the one hand and selfish gene theory on the other, as the two sources of fuel for methodological individualism in economics? Yes, I think so. I think so. Um, uh,
1: it's, uh, it's trying to recreate the world of physics, this bottom, up, everything can be inferred from the atoms. Um, and we know that's just... It's just wrong. Um, you know, um, modern... M- modern biology, modern social science, abandoning that view. There are big civil wars within all of these subjects. Um, um, But I'm I'm, I'm part of networks with, you know, fellows of the Royal Society, that Britain's sort of really fancy, um, hard science uh, discipline, um, which are all about the the revolutions in their own subjects, where they're now seeing that um, you can't possibly build up from atoms, as it were, to infer um, macroeconomic phenomena like a society. Um, If you want to understand uh, behavior in a society, you've got to work with some sort of meso-level concepts like communities, network communities, um, firms, uh, communities of work, communities of place. These are the building blocks um, from which you, you work then from those down to how people behave, people who form their behavior, their habits are formed by the communities in which they work and live. And then um, that in aggregate produces the, the, the sort of macro outcomes. And but you've got to have those middle entities, communities of place, communities of work, um, in order to understand anything.
0: What you're talking about there is emergence and earlier you mentioned Nicholas Christakis's brilliant book, Blueprint. My favorite illustration of emergence is in that book. He gives the analogy of carbon and he says, if you take a group of carbon atoms and connect them in one way, you get graphite, which is soft and dark and perfect for pencils. But if you take group of carbon atoms and connect them in another way you get diamond which is hard and sharp and used for for cutting and they're both made of carbon atoms but the way the atoms are structured and the way they relate to each other produces those properties of softness and darkness and hardness and clearness those properties are emergent and the same is true of human societies and human communities absolutely so
1: we can get emergent habits which are either the habits of the greedy, lazy, selfish, or emergent habits, which are the habits of the um, pro-social community. And we see that uh, after 40 years of individualism in America uh, versus 40 years of communitarianism in Denmark, when COVID struck, what did we get? and let me remind you, all right? in Denmark, we got a modest leader who was trusted, who was able to say to people, we all need to protect each other. If each of us has to be morally load-bearing in the whole of Denmark, it's up to all of us. Right? They didn't get a first wave of COVID huh? because of that behaviour. They didn't get a second wave of COVID. They did get a third wave, they got rid of it straight away, Several of the schools are open in in Denmark and the damage to the economy is very small, the damage to to people's lives is very small. And we go across to America, what was happening in America? Were people naturally understanding and being led by a modest leader to say protect each other? No. What was happening in America was a classic of uh, people indoctrinated into individualism. It was long queues outside gun shops. It was less protect your neighbor than shoot your neighbor. And of course, as an aggregate strategy for dealing with COVID, shoot your neighbor doesn't work very well. And so there is the difference between a pro-social society that has built habits of pro-sociality, those emergent tendencies, or um, uh, the emergent tendencies to individual greedy selfishness in America, which have led to these responses of queues outside gun shops. Um, Which society would you rather live in?
0: I recently tweeted out that we need more individuals and fewer individualists and it kind of at first glance sounds like a bit (laughs) of a lame sort of influences bumper sticker but what I was getting at was just that point that we need more individuals in the sense of people who are decorrelated from a centralized authority and from mainstream thinking because those are the people who push the boundaries of progress for us. Those are the entrepreneurs and the wacky scientists and the dissidents and the political activists but at the same time we need people like that to be acting for a moral purpose so we don't we don't want more individualists which I guess is sort of the the crux of your book greed is dead but if you wanted to go halves with me we could turn that into a bumper sticker and and sell sell some uh, (laughs) we need more individuals and fewer individualists the
1: spread of good ideas from individuals We've come up with something new that's worth doing that spread we now know from a new book called how behavior spreads by um, Damon Santola <coughs> we know that it depends upon thick um, overlaps between networks so that which means people need to talk to each other uh, even if they don't initially agree with each other and so the tragedy of our society at the moment is this polarization into segmented uh, groups which don 't interact other than by shouting at each other prevents us having ideas which travel easily between different communities so that good ideas spread. Good ideas spread in societies where people behave well to each other and listen. Um, and are respectful of each other 's views that 's where we can get the rapid spread of bright new ideas
0: and at the moment we need them. Do you believe there is such a thing as labor oversupply
1: labor oversupply no um, uh, i don 't um, um, this has been a, a, a sort of perennial um, myth for going back centuries, you know, this was the Luddites breaking machinery and all that sort of thing. Um, um, People um, are um, the great resource uh, of our planet. Um, uh, People um, uh, are going to be able to create um, worlds in which um, we all have worthwhile lives. uh, and for that we need this constant generation of ideas because the, the essence of human beings is we're imaginative and we're creative. And the tragedy is that we're better at imagining improved worlds than at delivering them. You know, we, we imagine um, um, uh, uh, that we can each uh, have an, uh, an individual uh, uh, plane uh, that takes off vertically, or whatever, um, and the reality is we get um, uh, Twitter or something, you know. Um, so, our imagination leaps way ahead of what we can accomplish, but then our creative minds kick in and grope and innovate, um, uh, experiment, and that's the dynamic process that we've been through for for, for 200,000 years. And one little um, vignette I like to suggest is if you... Squirrels, if you look out of the window, I can see squirrels. And squirrels are pretty smart. They're better than I am at running up and jumping across trees. They think about the future, they store nuts. So squirrels are not dumb at all. But if you want to understand what a squirrel was like 100,000 years ago, just look at one now. Um, Because in that 100,000 years, no squirrel seems to have had the imagination to think, is there a better way of being a squirrel? Um, And then thought, so what can I do about it? Um, But if you wanted to understand what a human being was like 100,000 years ago, we're genetically identical to what we were then, but it's absolutely bloody stupid to look at one now and think, oh, life was just the same then. Huh? Why? Because over that 100,000 years, we've kept imagining things being better, and then we kept wondering how, how? And that's the dynamic process that we're on as human beings. It's very exhilarating, um, but it keeps plunging us into Radical uncertainty, um, and so we need to have the a, a, a prudent approach, um, which um, sort of which which leads to wise decisions um, that don't hurl us off cliffs. Um, that's the the challenge. Keep the creativity, um, but within bounds of safety that don't hurl us off cliffs.
0: So I want to ask a, a policy question and Sydney and Melbourne are Australia's two main conurbations and both have generated massive gains from agglomeration. According to Henry George, why do landlords get the gains from agglomeration and do they deserve them?
1: Yeah, so it's a really good question. So I've, I've, I've done quite a lot of analysis on uh, agglomeration and the benefits of agglomeration. And um, it's quite clear that Humans are more productive if they cluster together um, and specialise individually but then bring those different skills together and cooperate. So that's why um, we're hugely productive in places like Melbourne, Sydney, London, right? Um, uh, the who should gain from that? Well um First of all, we have to realise that um, the, the gains uh, from agglomeration depend upon uh, vast investments by the whole society. Um, uh, right? London's the hub of uh, all Britain's rail networks, all its motorways, uh, it's got both of its international airports, it's got the link to uh, the... the uh, Channel tunnel linking to the continent, so basically everything, all the physical infrastructures in London, paid for by national taxes. Uh, the governments in London, um, and because the governments all got all the power in London and the decisions being taken in London, the financial community is all in London. So everything is in London. That makes people living in London very productive. It goes back to this merit and dessert point. They're productive because they're all clustered together in London and London is the place where they cluster because of a huge collective investment by the nation. And so who should benefit? Everybody. Who does benefit? First and foremost, the people who own the land in London because to work in London, you've got to be there. This was Henry George's inside. And so the, the gains tend to be captured by the appreciation in land values. And so sure enough in London, um, who was the first billionaire in Britain? Was it somebody who invented the train? No. Uh, Was it somebody who invented the steam engine? No. Um, The first billionaire uh, was the Duke of Westminster, who'd invented nothing. All he'd done was inherit a lot of the land in central London uh, um, and so he, did, he could lie on a beach all, all, all the time if he wanted, right? Um, uh, because he didn't have to do anything in order to become a billionaire. Because Britain was stupid enough that it didn't capture through taxation that vast appreciation in land. Right? And that was Henry George's insight. What a stupid thing to do to let uh, a few landowners capture what was the fruits of a massive collective effort, both by the people living and working in London and by the nation that had created London as the place for, a, for such a productive cluster in the first place. And what um, I and my colleague Tony Venables added to that was to say, actually, there's a new group of beneficiaries now, um, and it's the people who, um, you know, the, the very clever lawyer um, who, by being in London, next to the courts, and next to the banks and next to the government, um, uh, becomes highly productive um, and maybe they're not married um, and so they only live in a bedsit, they just rent a little bedsit, um, uh, but they earn a fortune and so then they're using very little land um, and so they're keeping those gains of agglomeration for themselves and the economic concept is the rents of agglomeration those rents of agglomeration should accrue to everybody and we need a tax system which does that but actually the rents of agglomeration at the moment in britain are divided probably more or less 50 50 between the landowners and these um, uh, people who think they deserve it all uh, and live uh, uh, singly in not very much accommodation and so don't drive up, don't pass much of it on to landlords. So that's the, the tragedy of, um, of the, the misappropriation of these huge rents of agglomeration.
0: Too many people view leadership roles, whether that's being the CEO of a company or a politician in a parliament, as a prize rather than a responsibility. And recently on the podcast, I've been discussing different examples of noblesse oblige to inspire people and inspire leaders to think more about how they can be people for others. And an example that I've frequently discussed is FDR, who was a traitor to his own class, who welcomed the hatred of his own class, as he famously said in that 1936 Madison Square Garden speech. But Paul, you're a Brit, and so I thought I should talk to you about a British example. Tell me about Titus Salt, how he is a model of Noblesse Oblige and and what we should learn from his example. Oh, I will.
1: Um, So Titus Salt is one of my heroes. Um, And um, who was he? So uh, he was um, the Mester Big in the fastest growing town in the whole of Europe. Um, So there was a Boomsville in mid-19th century Europe, just like there was a Boomsville in America with Chicago and a Boomsville in Australia with Melbourne. And the boom town in Britain was Bradford. Um, uh, Bradford created the the woolen industry, which was huge. and uh, Titus Salt was the big mill owner. He owned most most of the mills, so he was he was Mr. big in terms of the economy of Bradford. Um, my, my own German grandfather left an impoverished village in Germany and moved to Bradford. Right? That was the future. Right? Um, so um, uh, he was mess- Titus Salt was mester big. In terms of the uh, business, but he was also Mr. Big politically. Um, uh, he was the mayor of Bradford and he was the city's one MP, the Member of Parliament. So the buck stopped with him, right? He was everything. Um, and then in 1849, um, uh, disaster struck. Not financially, but Bradford, like the other cities of northern England um, was hell on earth for, for livability. If you bring a lot of people together you don't produce the, provide the public infrastructure like sewage, pipe water, you don't provide the housing. People are squashed up and so diseases spread. So life expectancy in the Northern cities by the mid 19th century had fallen to just 19 years. On average, you were dead at 19. And in 1849, when he was mayor, cholera struck. And so his workers were dying like flies. The citizens of Bradford were dying like flies. And a buck stopped with him. Now of course nobody knew what to do about cholera, um, but he did know that the buck stopped with him, uh, and it seems to have been the event that triggered a massively ch- massive change in his attitude, um, uh, uh, perhaps equivalent to the letter from that Bill Gates got from his dying mother, um, and so Bill, and so. Just as Bill Gates decided to give away his fortune, so did Titus Salt. Titus, Titus Salt gave away his entire fortune. And um, he recognized his obligations to his workers. He built the first purpose-built decent town for an industrial workforce on Earth. It was called Saltair, and it's now a World Heritage Centre because it was the first. Um, And the rest of his money, he gave away to clean up Bradford. He didn't know what to do about cholera, but he had some sense that if the city was clean, green, with parks and such like, it would be a better place to live. And that's what he did. So his entire fortune was devoted to that. That was a a capitalism with with moral responsibility. It was morally load-bearing. He became morally load-bearing. And that's the sort of capitalism we need. Um, uh, And it's the sort of capitalism from which we were diverted by this disgusting notion of Milton Friedman that the sole purpose of the firm was to make profits for shareholders. Fortunately, Chicago University itself, the Department of Economics, uh, has renounced that very recently. There's a wonderful collection where they do that. Um, organized uh, by uh, Professor Sigales. So that was the story of, um, of Bradford. Just to, to finish, if we go just a few miles away at the same time, we get to Rochdale. Um, same experience. Um, people died at 19. Um, same desperate anxieties. And then what do people do? They come together. What happened in Rochdale, it was the birth of the world's cooperative movement. People saying, I'll take obligations to you. If you die, I'll pay for your funeral, as long as you do that for me as well. And they did that at scale. So the cooperative movement very rapidly became the biggest funeral director in the country, amongst many other things. A Few miles away from that, Halifax became the biggest bank in the country a mutual arrangement, Um, we need somewhere to live. I'll pull my savings um, and we'll lend it to you as a mortgage if you put your savings in and then lend it to me as a mortgage. So these were cooperative coming together in which everybody recognised that by all of us being morally load-bearing, building obligations that were mutual, um, we could build a much better society. We could address the anxieties. That's what happened then, both in business with Titus Salt, both in Rochdale with the Rochdale pioneers and the idea spread around the world. And it's what's failed to happen the last 40 years. That is the tragedy of bad intellectual ideas. The rise of individualism uh, leading to a train wreck of a society.
0: Paul Collier, thank you so much for spreading good ideas, and thank you also for your time. Come back anytime. Thanks, Joe. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Two things before you go. One, if you want to read the transcript or the show notes for this episode, you'll find them on my website, thejspod.com. Number two please subscribe to the show. It means that you won't miss new episodes like this one and it also makes it easier for other people to find us and I would appreciate your help. The audio engineer for the Jolly Swagman podcast is Lawrence Moorfield. Our dehydrated video editor is Al Fetty, I'm Joe Walker. Until next week, thank you for listening. Ciao.